History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hello everyone, I'm Trevor Cully, and this is the History of Persia, episode 53, One by Land. Hey everyone, this is Trevor from the end of the episode, jumping back to the beginning here to provide just a little bit of a disclaimer. This is one of the most detailed descriptions of a battle that we will get until the Parthian period, and as such, I am going to be talking about the details that Herodotus discusses. That includes things like people dying in battle, how they died, what happened to their bodies afterwards, and the enslavement of people who were captured after the fighting. Of course, these are things that happened in basically every battle we'll ever discuss on this show, but this event in particular has more detailed insight than usual, and I don't want to spring something like that on anybody in the middle of the episode. Things have been a little stop and go the last few episodes, so let's all get on the same page. The last narrative episode covered the aftermath of the Battle of Salome. Xerxes has returned to Persian territory with most of his army, and wintered at Sardis after a disastrous trek back through Thrace. Meanwhile, Mardonius and a small Persian army of perhaps as few as 15 to 30,000 soldiers and camp followers took up residence in Thessaly. Meanwhile, his co-commander, Artabazos, made the round trip with some of Xerxes' royal guard all the way from Greece to Sardis and back to Greece again. 
Over the course of these journeys, we discovered that the Greek and Thracian cities just east of Macedon were actively resisting Persian rule, but could not be defeated by the small force under Artabazos. When the spring of 479 rolled around, Alexander I of Macedon went to Athens as a Persian emissary to entice the Athenians into joining the Persian side. Not only was he unsuccessful, but the Athenians ran him out of town before running away themselves. Athens was evacuated and abandoned once again as the inhabitants made their way to Salome and Mardonius reoccupied the city. If the Persian victories of 480 and the defeat at Salome represent round one of this prize fight, we're about to start round two. Thanks to Herodotus's loving and painstaking detail around the coming battle, I actually have enough information about the Persian side of 479 that I can mostly focus on the Persian army. Plus, the overall Greek political situation hasn't changed that much. As I mentioned last time, the political winds of Athens shifted away from Themistocles and in favor of the aristocratic leaders of the land army. As always, Athens and the Peloponnesian cities led by Sparta are at odds over whether or not to defend Attica or hold the line at Corinth. The usual internecine Greek conflicts and disputes continue to plague the Greek army, but something was changing in 479. The previous year, Athens and the Peloponnesians could balance one another's influence. Everyone agreed they needed the Athenian navy and the larger Peloponnesian army to stall the Persian advance. But now, the Athenian navy had complete dominance over the seas. The Persian fleet remained far away at Samos, and the rest of Greece could only muster half as many ships as the Athenians. As a result, Athens could dictate terms. At the beginning of spring, Alexander had offered amnesty to Athens if it allied itself with Persia. This would not only effectively cede control of northern Greece entirely to Mardonius, but also give the Persian-Athenian alliance uncontested naval power, and thus a backdoor route for both an amphibious invasion of the Peloponnese and a frontal assault on Corinth. The Peloponnesian League alone could not muster the troops necessary to combat both fronts. As a result, Sparta had to keep Athens on their side. The concerns of the Athenian loyalty did not vanish after they sent Alexander packing. While Mardonius occupied Athens, he sent a Hellespontine Greek called Maricides as an envoy to the Athenian exiles on Salome. Maricides offered the same terms as Alexander and was turned away just the same, but this time one Athenian official did support the proposal. That official was stoned to death along with his family by an irate mob, but if one Athenian official was considering it openly, then many may have considered it in private. This prompted the Athenian envoys to Sparta to beseech the Council of Ephors to authorize a Spartan Peloponnesian army to march north and take the fight to Mardonius. At first, they were refused on account of another Spartan religious festival. The second time the Athenians were ready to play hardball, and openly threatened to make peace with Persia. I can only imagine the muffled laughing as they spoke to the ephors. 
because the Athenians were shocked to discover that 5,000 Spartan hoplites and 35,000 lightly armed Helot slaves were already marching north. After a full year of back-and-forth debate on tactics between Athens and Sparta, the Hellenic League was fielding its first full-strength army against the Persians. This army was going to be commanded by Pausanias. Now, Pausanias is a relatively common ancient Greek name and actually belongs to a whole series of famous authors and generals and politicians, but the man in question today was actually the acting regent for the Agiad kingship in Sparta. He was Leonidas' nephew and acted as the agent and guardian of the young king Pleistarchus. I explained last time that it was technically King Leotikidas' turn as the Spartan field commander, and he had taken control of a safer position in the navy. But the gravity of the situation and Pleistarchus' relative safety in Sparta, with his other uncles, allowed a second royal commander to take the field in 479. The Athenian delegation rushed back to Salome to raise the alarm and get their own forces over to the mainland with their allies. And with this, both sides had made their first moves. Around the same time, the city of Argos, the lone rival to Sparta and ally to Persia in the Peloponnese, sent a messenger to Mardonius, who was still encamped at Athens. They sent a warning that the Spartan army was on the move, and it was too large for the Argives to oppose them. They would pass into Mardonius's captured territory soon, and the Persians should make their preparations. As much as Mardonius may have wanted to control as much Greek territory as possible, he once again found himself looking at the burnt shell of Athens and realized he couldn't keep his army in Attica. Instead, he ordered his troops to destroy what was left or rebuilt from their last occupation and withdrew to the north. Thebes was the closest, large, and friendly city, so he made that his new home base and engaged in a scorched earth campaign on his way out of Attica. The Persian army pillaged, burned, and stole whatever resources the Athenians and Peloponnesians would have needed to pass through that territory and reach Thebes. They weren't even out of Attica yet when Mardonius sent part of his army to double back. His scouts returned with news that an advanced Spartan force of only 1,000 troops was already near the city of Megara in western Attica. A contingent of cavalry was sent to intercept them and pillage Megaran territory. They never did find a Spartan army, but that incursion marked the westmost point of the Persian invasion of Greece. Ultimately, that intelligence may have been faulty, because the next thing we hear from Herodotus is that the Greeks were assembling all of their forces at Corinth, and Mardonius continued his way towards Thebes. Once there, he ordered his men to cut down as many trees as possible in order to construct fortifications and structures for their new encampment. According to Herodotus, this was really more like a small town. It started on the banks of the Asopos River and stretched north through three towns in the suburbs of Thebes. Just south of the northern corner of the camp was the small village of Plataea, or Plataea as you might have heard it before. Now I want to pause for a second because the way I'm telling this story, which is pretty much the same way Herodotus or Diodorus would tell it, makes it feel like we're moving at breakneck pace. Of course it does. We're building up to the climax of Herodotus' story. 
This is his Waterloo, his Battle of Endor, his Pelennor Fields. We're neck deep in the action movie script at this point, but things are actually moving very slowly. Alexander probably went to Athens in late March, but the Greek and Persian armies won't actually square off until mid-August. In between, there were weeks of Mardonius marching south, the Athenians fleeing, sending delegations back and forth between Salome and Sparta, and Salome and Persian Athens. Then still more weeks came of tens of thousands of Persian troops marching north from Athens, methodically burning everything, and even more time spent building this fortification as small contingents of Greek infantry trickled into Corinth. Already, just a few minutes into the script, we've blown through most of spring 479. Both sides are about to spend the summer posturing, trying to lure the other into favorable battle positions. I want to point this out because it's actually represented pretty well by a brief anecdote told by Herodotus that I find absolutely fascinating. One of the leading Theban aristocrats invited Mardonius and 50 Persians into the city for a feast, paired with their host and 50 noble Thebans and other Boeotians from the countryside. Boeotia being the region surrounding Thebes. One of these aristocrats from the outlying towns was Thersander of Orchomenos, a well-respected Aristo according to Herodotus, and one of our historian's sources. Herodotus says that he heard the story of this feast from Thersander, an actual guest who dined alongside the Persian commanders and even shared a couch and wine bowl with one of the occupying guests, who happened to speak Greek well enough to engage in a conversation. Thersander's companion goes unnamed, somewhat unusually for Herodotus, and is only called the Persian. I'm just going to read from Robin Waterfield's translation of Herodotus here. It's a long quote, but it is so unique and intimate in a way that we never get from Herodotus. Note that the dialogue is at least portrayed as a direct quote from Thersander recounting the Persians' personal words to Herodotus. Book 9, Chapter 16. This Thersander said that he too was invited by Atagonos to this dinner, and there were invited also fifty men of the Thebans, and their host did not place them to recline separately, each nation to themselves but a Persian and a Theban upon every couch. Then, when dinner was over, as they were drinking pledges to one another, the Persian who shared the couch with him, speaking in the Hellenic tongue, asked him of what place he was, and he answered that he was of Orchomenos. The Persian said, Since you have now become my table companion and the sharer of my libations, I desire to leave behind with you a memorial of my opinion in order that you yourself may also know beforehand and be able to take such counsels for yourself as may be profitable to you. Do you see these Persians who are feasting here, and the army which we left behind encamped on the river? Of all these, when a little time has gone by, you shall see but very few survivors." As the Persian said these words, he shed many tears, according to Thersander's report. And he, marveling at this speech, said to him, 
Surely then it is right to tell this to Mardonius and to those Persians who after him are held in high regard. Upon this he said, My friend, that which is destined to come from the god, it is impossible for a man to avert. For no man is willing to follow counsel, even when one speaks that which is reasonable. And these things which I say many of us Persians already know well, yet we go with the rest being bound in the bonds of necessity. And the most hateful grief of all human griefs is this, to have knowledge of the truth but no power over the event. These things I heard from Thersander of Orchomenos, and in addition to this also, namely that he told them to various persons immediately before the battle took place at Plataea. I know the language used by Robin Waterfield is a little hard to follow, but it is, I think, the best modern translation that combines mostly modern words with the way Herodotus is actually written. And this is really stunning stuff for a lot of reasons. Full disclosure, I wrote almost five pages trying to discuss this one passage before deciding to make it a separate bonus episode. So keep your eyes and ears out for that. We're not here to talk about Thersander today, so I just want to hone in on one thing. Thersander's Persian friend has doubts about the coming conflict with the Greeks. The overall style of this particular passage is enough to make me actually trust him on this one thing. This is probably indicative that the Persians did not have the overwhelming superiority that the ancient sources portray them with. Maybe there was closer parity, or Mardonius was overreaching by trying to secure Attica and continue the conquest. Or maybe it was something less tangible, like some kind of plague in the Persian camp or bad omens. Who knows? But at least one of Mardonius's commanders expressed doubts about the outcome of this campaign. I also think Herodotus might have this story in the wrong part of his narrative, unless things were really going quite poorly in the Persian camp, and he didn't report those details. It probably belongs more to the part of the story where the two sides could actually see each other, if I had to guess. However, it does fit well with his next story, which is about 1,000 Greek hoplites from Phokia, the same city whose men had defended the goat path at Thermopylae. The Phokians marched north, but only to deliver earth and water and join the Persian army. But on their approach, as a previously hostile force, they were initially attacked by the Persian cavalry, who assumed their intentions had not changed. The cavalry pulled back after a brief skirmish, and Mardonius was able to exchange messengers with the Phokians before inviting yet another defeated Greek city into the Persian fold. While the Persians were busy with dinners, construction, and accepting surrenders, the main force of the Greek army was growing larger and larger on their way north. They were held up briefly because they couldn't secure the right divine omens to start their march. But ultimately, the Spartans joined the other Peloponnesians at Corinth, and then this large Peloponnesian army joined the Athenians at Eleusis. There, they waited for some more sacrifices and omens, and then an even larger Greek force was able to march into Boeotia. 
It might seem odd that a serious military was waiting for seemingly random divine omens from goat livers to make their strategic decisions, but this was standard practice in the ancient world. And it was almost certainly happening in both camps. Not only did the Persians have a large number of Greeks in their army, but if you remember back to episode 47, Xerxes was very concerned with what astrological events and dreams meant for his initial campaign. When the Greeks and Persians finally came face to face, it was at a distance. The Persian camp was on the banks of the Asopos River, and the Greeks encamped in the foothills of Mount Kithairon. This left an almost 10-kilometer gap between the two forces on either side of the town of Plataea. Obviously, they were both trying to draw their opponent into a more favorable battlefield. Mardonius wanted the Greeks down in the plains, where he had ample space to maneuver his cavalry. And the Greeks wanted to disrupt the cavalry with the uneven terrain of the foothills. Mardonius struck first, deploying his cavalry anyway under a commander called Mesistios. They attacked the Greeks' western flank with javelins and arrows. They were shouting insults at them in Greek, calling them women, and I have to laugh a little bit at the idea of all of the Persian cavalry learning a few Greek insults before battle just to taunt their enemies. Given the terrain, this was obviously just a tactic to provoke the Greeks into descending a little further into Mardonius's preferred battlefield. But surprisingly, it was almost effective right in the foothills. They attacked the Megarian garrison, and almost overwhelmed them with how constant the barrage of missile fire was. They actually had to send a messenger deeper into the Greek camp to reach their commanders and call for reinforcements. If the attack had gone on any longer, the Megarians might have collapsed and given this Persian cavalry contingent free reign behind Greek lines. Unfortunately for Persia, that is not what happened. 300 Athenian hoplites, that is, heavily armored, spear and shield-bearing infantry, and a contingent of Greek archers volunteered to assist the Megarians. Hoplites are the glamorous warriors of Greek literature, filling the kind of position of medieval knights or Roman legionnaires in their own time, but the Greeks did have archers, javelin throwers, slingers, and other light infantry. They just don't get a ton of attention, even though they were probably more useful against cavalry harassment, and won the day for the Greeks in this case. Mesistios' initial success quickly turned to disaster. A Greek arrow struck his side, found a gap in his armor, and hit hard and painfully enough that the cavalry commander fell off his huge warhorse. This was a Nisean horse from Media larger than most of the other breeds at the time, and decked out with a golden bridle and noble regalia. Mesistios himself was wearing armor that Herodotus describes as golden scales, probably made from highly polished bronze over a bright red tunic. The pair would have cut an imposing and intimidating figure as he was riding well ahead of the rest of the cavalry in a display of Persian grandeur. Upon hitting the ground... The newly arrived Athenians charged the cavalry commander, but they couldn't kill him at first. Despite the initial arrow's success, the Athenians could not penetrate his armor with their spears and swords. So he was trapped, surrounded by Greeks, 
being beaten with iron blades and waiting for his men to save him. Until someone got a clear shot at his head and stabbed him through the eye. There's not much armor will do to protect you against that. The other Persian cavalry were rearing around for another charge and did not realize what had happened until it was too late. Different groups of cavalry reformed into one large unit and charged at the Athenians. The Megarians and the Greek archers rushed on foot to reinforce their allies, while the Persians and the Athenians found themselves in a close-quarter melee, spear against horse, fighting over Mecistios' dead body. Ultimately, the Greeks repelled the cavalry and kept the corpse, forcing the Persians to return to camp, where Herodotus reports that they spent the night mourning their fallen commander. Meanwhile, Mecistios' body and his ornate Near Eastern regalia were carted around the Greek camp on display as a morale booster. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch, and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. This success against cavalry encouraged the Greeks so much that they felt confident that they could descend into the plain near Plataea and take advantage of the freshwater spring there as a way to resupply. The Greeks knew that descending into the plain would provoke Mardonius, and after some debate, they drew up their massive battle line, with the Spartans on the right, the southern end, and the Athenians to the north on the left flank. 
even after the newly established camp, more and more Greeks were still pouring in, deciding that conquest and defeat were no longer as inevitable as they might have seemed a year earlier. According to Herodotus, they numbered around 110,000 total by the actual battle. This included 40,000 hoplites and almost 70,000 lightly armed troops, half of which were helots brought by the Spartans. God only knows what the Spartans told them to get 35,000 serf slaves that almost certainly would have benefited from Persian rule on their side, but here they were. As always, Herodotus is accused of inflating his numbers a bit, but not by much. Based on the populations, size, archaeology, and resources of the cities involved, modern sources sometimes put it closer to 60 to 80,000. But in the grand scheme of this battle, that is not a huge difference. Except, it's a massive difference. This was, by far, the largest Greek army ever assembled. The great battles of the internecine Greek wars in the following century were usually closer to 6,000 men. Even Alexander's army at its peak deployed more like 50 to 60,000. Never again would the Greeks be so united. And this is with almost 50,000 Greeks on the opposite side. This coincides with the height of Achaemenid power and cohesion, with unfettered access to the full strength of their new Greek subjects. Of course, we are a far cry from Xerxes' 200,000-strong invasion force. The coming battle is between the height of Greek solidarity and the Persian occupation force left to consolidate gains in northern Greece, along with those levied Greek troops. Modern estimates based on the description of the Persian camp go as low as 70,000. It would really flip the traditional narrative on its head to imagine a battle of Plataea where the Greeks had a 10,000-man advantage over the Persians. But it's not impossible. The traditional narrative is also that Mardonius was still trying to conquer all of Greece. But like I keep saying, that was probably not the case. He was probably just there to consolidate what they had already taken. The Persian cavalry positioned itself opposite the Spartans, the Sakai opposite the Athenians, with all of the other cavalry in the middle, and the Greek hoplite infantry they had conscripted arrayed behind them. At the rear was a diverse collection of light infantry and archers from the western satrapies of the Persian Empire, including some Egyptian marines who had been conscripted by Mardonius before the fleet retreated from Salome. That's another group whose opinions I'd love to have access to. Leave the Nile to serve in the navy for a few months, find yourself as infantry looking up a mountain in Greece a year and a half later. And as I said, conscripted Greeks, both hoplite and light infantry, were estimated to be about 50,000, half or more of the entire Persian army. So in reality, a lot of this battle was going to be between pro-Persia Greece and anti-Persia Greece, with the pro-Persia side just supplemented with their new imperial overlords. These two armies did nothing but stare at each other for eight days. Well, stare and make sacrifices. 
even if Mardonius got nothing but positive signs from his own gods, he had so many Greeks that he was practically bound by the same constraint as the opposing force. So both camps just kept making sacrifices and practicing divination with Greek priests to try and get a good sign. Eventually, Mardonius just sent a cavalry raid to guard the mountain pass around Cithiron, where they intercepted a Greek baggage train bringing supplies from the Peloponnese. The ambush was successful and they quickly dispatched the guards, capturing the supplies and survivors, and taking it all back to the Persian camp as spoils of war. Mardonius even had his troops march all the way up to the river's edge, away from their fortified camp, but they would not progress any farther, apparently trying to provoke the Greeks into making the first move. This lasted for two more days. After all this waiting, Artabazos, the Persian commander who had gone to and from Greece twice now, was apparently Mardonius' second in command. He suggested that they march the army back up to Thebes and demand as much gold and grain as possible to bribe the Greek leaders into surrender rather than waiting any longer for one side to get a favorable Greek omen. According to Herodotus, this was the last straw for Mardonius, who apparently felt that his religious obligations had been met at this point. Mardonius ordered his troops to prepare for a fight. At this point, Thersander's Persian friend was definitely not the only one with cold feet. According to Herodotus, King Alexander of Macedon snuck out of the Persian camp to warn the Greeks that a Persian attack was coming in the morning. When the sun came up, Mardonius was frustrated that he still didn't have any real advantage. The Greeks were ready for him. So he made one last attempt to break up the Greek army. He sent a messenger to the Spartans, offering that they and the Persian contingents alone would fight on behalf of their respective forces. And Herodotus says the Spartans just stared at him. The messenger went back. I imagine he just kind of shrugged and Mardonius ordered another tactic. The cavalry were once again sent in to harass the Greeks with missile fire. They focused on the Spartans, who were positioned closest to the freshwater spring, while other Persians were able to dismount and dump debris into the water, disrupting the stream that the Greeks were using to supply their troops. Without water in the hot August sun, the Greeks were not going to last long. That evening, their commanders agreed to a strategic reposition, even though some of their rear guard were hesitant at first. They shifted the entire army toward another spring on a hilltop, even closer to the town of Plataea. So close that the Greeks actually started making their sacrifices in the city's temples. This apparently moved the Greeks somewhat out of sight from the Persian camp, because Herodotus suggests that Mardonius thought they were in retreat. He was wrong, and inadvertently lured into attacking the Greeks after they had taken the high ground. Mardonius, the son of Gabrius, the son and brother-in-law to Darius the Great, the reconqueror of Thrace and trusted commander of the King of Kings, led the charge in person. The whole Persian army rushed across the open plain in front of Plataea. 
Understandably, with a massive Persian army bearing down on them, most of the Greeks surged forward in their own charge to defend themselves, except the Spartans, whose regent, Pausanias, demanded that they wait until they got a good omen. He kept sacrificing right up to the Persians reaching the first of the Greek lines, at which point Herodotus says he finally got the result he wanted. Personally, I'd be a bit skeptical. The Athenians, and presumably much of the Greek force, was immediately tied up in a slow back-and-forth with their pro-Persian countrymen. Most notably, the Thebans and the Athenians were locked on the left side of the battlefield. According to Herodotus, for most of the Greeks present, this was a series of charges and retreats until the Persians themselves were retreating back towards their camp. Once in range, the Persian archers came to a halt and started firing into the Greek lines, with the Sparabara shield carriers setting up their defensive walls. Much like the Athenians a decade earlier, at Marathon, the Spartans who came under this barrage charged forward to close the distance between themselves and the source of the arrows. The arrows would have been launched up in an arc, to gain more distance, and an army that could reach the infantry line was relatively safe from direct missile fire. As a result, as the Spartans got nearer, the bows were stowed away and the light infantry shifted to their swords and axes and spears. There was some brief skirmishing over the wall of wicker shields held up by the Sparabara, but the Greeks broke through those barriers quickly. The Persian infantry tried to grab and break Greek spears by the shaft, leading to a close-quarters melee of short weapons, like swords and axes. But even in that scenario, Mesopotamian-style light infantry just wasn't prepared to overcome a huge wall of Greek shields, and the Spartans were overwhelmingly successful. The Persian troops wore little to no armor, so little that Herodotus calls them naked in battle. They moved in small groups of skirmishers to try and attack small isolated targets, but the Greeks fought in close, heavily armored formations. It was two styles of warrior that were not intended to meet. The Eastern Mediterranean world was not unfamiliar with heavily armored men with big shields and long spears. Both Phoenician and Anatolian armies fought like this as well, not to mention the Ionian Greeks. But no commander would have intentionally deployed lightly armed archers against those soldiers in hand-to-hand -hand combat. The Spartans at Plataea just weren't fighting a fair fight. Outside of this very one-sided conflict, the Persian line was actually working well. Mardonius was leading 1,000 Persian cavalry up and down the lines to provide assistance wherever his troops were suffering most, and if he was moving that much, he was probably coordinating strategy with commanders who couldn't otherwise communicate. That is, he was doing all of this until he was killed, a feat that Herodotus credits to a Spartan named Arimnestos. His death and apparently the overwhelming success of the Spartans against the light infantry, led to a breakdown in the Persian line. What remained of Mardonius's cavalry retreated toward their camp on the far side of the Asopos. Seeing their supposed superiors routed, the Persian line collapsed into a general retreat. 
The cavalry fought for the longest, protecting the retreating infantry from the advancing Greeks for as long as they could, but they were eventually forced to turn and run. The pro-Persian Greeks from Thebes had actually fielded their own cavalry, but it was pushed up into the mountains by a pincer movement of Corinthians and a few other Greek cities, where their speed was nullified and the Theban cavalry was slaughtered by the foot soldiers. Herodotus actually has the gall to criticize the rest of the invading army for following the Persian example and retreating, saying, And this is additional proof to me that all the fortunes of the barbarians depended upon the Persians, namely that at the time these men fled before they had even engaged with the enemy, because they saw the Persians doing so. He seems to think that this is proof that the Persians were the only competent fighters in the army, but why in the world would the rest of the force stick around if their two primary commanders were dead and retreating? Not to mention the elite Persian cavalry, representatives of the ruling class of the empire, had fled as well. I even speculated last time that some of the Indians or Scythians could have been mercenaries. Paid soldiers were not going to hang around while their paymasters ran away. Meanwhile, Artabazos was hanging back with the troops under his command, not yet engaged in battle. This would have included the 10,000 or so troops who had been assigned to protect Xerxes on his way back to Sardis, as well as what Herodotus says is an additional 30,000 men. How accurate that figure could be is hard to say because there's not much evidence for it one way or the other, but modern casualty estimates seem to think that 20 to 40,000 with Artabazos could be right. Herodotus attributes his non-participation to some kind of acrimony between him and Mardonius, but who knows what Artabazos' real orders may have been. Regardless, once the main Persian force under Mardonius was in retreat, Artabazos and his men fled the battlefield as well. But he didn't return to the Persian camp, and he didn't run to Thebes. Instead, Artabazos assessed the situation quickly and decided that Boeotia was lost entirely. He and his troops fled north toward more friendly territory, and he may have been extra motivated to get as far away from the Persian camp as he could if he predicted what would come next. The remaining Persian army held up inside the palisade they had constructed along the river. The Spartans reached the wall first and started besieging the Persian camp. They were soon joined by other Greek allies, and the Athenians were able to force an opening in the fortifications. Inside the enclosure, the remaining Persian forces were caught up in the confines of their own defenses and subject to a bloodbath on the receiving end of Greek spears. Their camp was pillaged and looted for anything valuable which they might have brought from their homelands. Herodotus's casualty numbers are just as unreliable as most of his other figures, but his record that 3,000 Persian troops were taken prisoner is both reasonable and probably accurate. Regardless of any precise numbers, 43,000 becomes our maximum number for the Persian survivors, Greeks included. That means more than half of the army died in the fighting. The Greeks pillaged the tents and belongings of Persian officers, and Herodotus reports all sorts of treasure taken by the Greeks, 
Serving ware, idols, jewelry, and other ornaments of gold, silver, and bronze were all taken, melted down, or sold to provide votive offerings at Greek temples like Delphi and Olympus. One of the highlights was Xerxes' personal banquet set and furniture, which he had left with Mardonius in Greece, but the great tragedy is only alluded to in the form of enslaved captives. Not only were the 3,000 surviving soldiers enslaved, but it is implied that a large number of women and other servants who had followed the army to Greece were also sold off as chattel. Herodotus tells the story of one woman, a Carian Greek concubine to a Persian officer, who was able to secure her freedom by directly besieging Pausanias. But he tells her story as an exception to the general rule. How in the world the Greeks disposed of all of the battle dead is beyond me. Cremation would make the most sense, but Herodotus says that the people of Plataea stripped the flesh from the bones of the Persian dead, and the Greeks marveled at some of the skeletons that were particularly large or had notable deformities. How they accomplished this is not explained. It may just be that they were burned but not thoroughly reduced to ash. Just like the aftermath of Marathon, some more allies arrived after the battle to survey the battlefield, and each participating Greek city constructed a burial mound on site to inter their own dead. Nothing is said of the Persian remains. There was more to be done, and even with the Persians gone, the war was far from over. Hostilities would even resume in Boeotia just ten days later. But for now, I'm going to shift my focus to the far side of the Aegean Sea. Supposedly, on the very same day as Plataea, a different pair of Greek and Persian armies were locked in another brutal battle that would open the door to a much greater set of changes for both Greece and the Persian Empire. But the Battle of Mycale will have to wait until next time. For now... If you want more information about this podcast, you can find me online at historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you can find things like the Achaemenid Royal Family Tree, my bibliography, and the support page for this podcast, where you can find links to financially support this project. That includes things like my Patreon page, where you can sign up for a monthly subscription, where you get access to ad-free listening, bonus episodes, or more, depending on the tier or the one-time payment buttons that I've scattered all over the website. Again, that's historyofpersiapodcast.com. However, there are entirely free ways to support this podcast. The best is to let other people know about it. Share episodes on social media, tell everybody how much you love the history of Persia, and you can find me to link them directly at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, or just History of Persia on Twitter. I also always love to see reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you happen to use. Your feedback is always greatly appreciated, and quite often very fun for me to see. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.